What you just heard was a Coke commercial from 1969 in which Coca-Cola claimed that it's the real thing. And since that time, they've claimed that you can't beat the real thing. And with 51% worldwide soft drink market share, almost 700 million drinks sold each day, and an annual sales rate of about $20 billion, I'd say people like the real thing. But I think that's true in every area of, of life. We like the real thing. I mean, do you prefer hamburgers or tofu burgers? Last night on TV, there was a show about celebrity impersonators. Would you like to meet an impersonator or would you rather meet the real thing? Ladies, allergies and sensitivities aside, would you prefer to get fake flowers or the real thing? I think everyone in most circumstances would prefer the real thing. That's what we desire. We want things to be real. We want them to be authentic. We want them to be genuine. This is the second week in our series called Get Real. And we're talking about getting real in a variety of areas of life. Last week we talked about real love. Experiencing real love and expressing real love. Next week we'll be talking about real life. We'll talk about how real life is a series of ups and downs, successes and failures, joys and heartaches. And we're going to see that through it all, there can be ultimate meaning and purpose. That's next week. But today, I want to talk with you about real faith. In particular, I want to talk with you about what James says about real faith in that passage in James chapter 2 that we read earlier in our worship celebration. I mean, there are a lot of people who cling to a phony religion, people who claim that they're Christians, but perhaps really aren't. Do they have the real thing? Because in this passage in James chapter 2, James talks about the difference between real and counterfeit Christians, authentic believers and fake believers. He talks about how you can have real faith. But how can I know if I have a real faith? What is real faith anyway? Well, that's a good question. And to answer it, I need to first explain what it's not. You can use the notes provided for you in your Sunrise Update to follow along and fill in the blanks as we go. But number one, what is real faith? Well, number one, real faith is not just something you say. Real faith is not just something you say. It's not just something you talk about. You can see that clearly in James chapter 2, verse 14, where it says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? I think the key word here in this verse is the word claims. You can underline that or circle it, highlight it some way in your notes. What if he claims to have faith? It doesn't say that he actually has faith. He just claims to have it. He talks about it. He knows all the right phrases. He knows the lingo. And I got to say, there's a lot of people attending churches all across North America this morning, right now, this very moment, that would fit into that category. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians and say all the right things. But is their faith real? According to the last national census taken here in Canada back in 2001, 72% of the population claim to be Christian. That's about 22 million people here in this country. Problem is, for many of them, you don't see any change in their lifestyle. Today we tend to label people as Christians if they make even the slightest sound of being a believer. Think about it. How many actors and musicians thank God when they win an award and they come across as being Christian? You might label them as being Christian because they take the time to thank God or even to thank their, their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
but then they continue to work on projects that reject godly values. How many times does that happen? Real faith involves more than just talk. Jesus expressed this himself. He said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not all people who sound religious are really godly. They may re refer to me as Lord, but they still won't enter the kingdom of heaven. The, decis the decisive issue is whether they obey my Father in heaven. So not everybody with a Christian bumper sticker is a believer. Not everybody who's a professor of Christianity is a possessor of Christianity. James asked here in this passage, can such faith save him? No, it can't, I think is the implied response. He asked, what value is there in this kind of faith? There is none. Talk is cheap. Do you remember when Larry Flint said that he was born again? Larry Flint is the publisher of Hustler magazine. And back in 1977, he claimed to have converted to Christianity and he vowed that he would hustle for God. But you never saw any real change in his life. He continued to produce pornography. There was no difference, no change. In fact, he later renounced Christianity and even disowned his daughter, who has herself become a Christian and now campaigns against pornography. Do you know anybody that claims to be a Christian, but you don't see the evidence of that in their life? That's a phony faith. Real faith is not just something you say. Secondly, real faith is not just something you feel. It's more than an emotional experience, but for some, that's all they're looking for. They confuse emotions and sentiment with real faith. I've known people who would go to church on Sunday. They'd wave their hands during the music. They'd cry at the altar. They'd experience all the emotions. And then they'd go about their lives as if nothing ever happened. You can be emotionally moved and never act on it. You can go to church and get that quiver in your liver and those godly goosebumps, that emotional exhilaration, but it never makes any difference for you. Look at this verse. In James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, James is talking about faith, and then he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Here in these couple of verses, you can underline the words, does nothing. Does nothing. You see the person who's down to their luck. They don't have clothes to wear. They have no food to eat. And you even feel sorry for them. And you wish them well. But you don't actually do anything to remedy the situation. You do nothing. And James says that's not a real faith. Because faith is more than just something you feel. There is an old Peanuts comic strip that shows Charlie Brown and Linus, and they're inside, it's winter time, they're inside, they're all bundled up and they're warm, and they look outside and they see Snoopy outside in the cold, and he's shivering in front of an empty dog food bowl. Charlie Brown and Linus start talking about what they've seen, and they comment on how hungry and cold Snoopy must be, and so they decide that they need to do something about it. And so they walk outside and they walk over to Snoopy and they say to him, Be of good cheer, Snoopy. And then they walk away. Do you know where Charles Schultz got that idea for that comic strip? He got the idea for it from this verse right here in James. What good is it if you see someone in need and you say, I feel for you, or cheer up, or I wish you well? 
That's not any good at all if that's all you do. James is saying it's more than just words and it's more than just feelings. Or say you go outside here this morning after our worship celebration finishes up and say you're getting into your car and you happen to slam eight fingers in your car door. I have absolutely no idea how you'd be able to do that, but say you did that. And you're standing there in agony with blood on your fingers and I see you and I see what kind of agony you're in and I walk over to you and I just say, I really feel for you. And then I get in my car and I drive away. Is that of any help at all? Real faith is more than just sympathy and feelings and emotions. You do something about it. You act on it. You give assistance. Real faith takes the initiative. A real believer has real faith and it's a practical faith. It gets involved with people. And if you want to get more specific, James is talking here in this passage about other Christians. He's saying, suppose a brother or a sister in the faith is without food and clothing. He's talking about brothers and sisters. He's talking about co-believers in Christianity. When you become part of God's family, you have some family responsibilities. A real believer will care about other believers. You don't just feel sympathy, you act on it. Real faith is a generous faith. It wants to give. Who can count on you in a crisis? How many Christians have the freedom to call you up in the middle of the night if they have an emergency? It's not just talking the talk. It's not just feeling for people. It's acting in love. That's what real faith requires of you. But you know, sometimes I think we're a lot better at verbalizing our faith than we are at practicing it. Maybe we see all the needs around us and we figure, I can't meet every need. And so we decide, I'll do nothing. But you know what? I can't meet everybody's needs. But I can meet somebody's. Even Jesus couldn't meet everybody's needs during those three years that he traveled from place to place. But James is saying that if my faith doesn't lead me to share with others, it's wrong. It's a dead faith. James went on to say in verse 17, Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Even if I feel for other Christians when, they're, when they need help, if I don't actually do something about it, then I don't just have a sick faith. I have a dead faith, according to James. James is laying it right out there. He says, do you want real faith? It's more than just something you say, and it's more than just something you feel. Thirdly, he says that real faith is not just something you think. But for some people, faith is an intellectual trip. It's something to be studied and debated and talked over and discussed. They want to stimulate their intellect. And so that's all they do with faith. They analyze it. The Apostle Paul encountered people like that, particularly in Greece, the land of philosophers. Let me show you what happened with Paul when he was in Athens, waiting for his traveling companions to join him there. It says in Acts chapter 17, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to debate with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, This babbler has picked up some strange ideas. Others said he's pushing some foreign religion. 
Then they took him to the Council of Philosophers. Come and tell us more about this new religion, they said. You're saying some rather strange things. We want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seemed to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of a person who had been dead, some laughed, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others. Okay, that's in Acts chapter 17. And this was a city of intellectuals. Athens was a city of intellectuals who would debate issues of faith ad nauseum. That's what we're told here in this passage. They would, they would, go, they would talk about uh, issues of faith and never stop talking about it. They would explore every facet of it intellectually. But that's all that they would do. Now, don't misunderstand me here. It's not wrong to think about your faith. Just like it's not wrong to express your faith in words or to have an emotional experience. The problem is when that's all it is. And for most of these intellectuals in Athens, not all of them, but for most of them, that's all they were interested in doing. Debating it. Exploring it intellectually. They had no plans to do anything about it. They just wanted to talk about it. And I have those types of intellectual, philosophical discussions with people even today. And I know these discussions are important because sometimes people have questions that need to be answered before they can respond in faith to Jesus. I realize that. But there are also times when I wonder, even if I was able to answer every question that they ever posed, would that be enough for them? Would they respond then? Or would they just continue to look for new questions to stimulate their intellect and to philosophize about without ever actually making a decision? Well, Paul warned us about people like that because he didn't just run into them in Athens. He ran into them all over. And so he warned the Colossians. And I'm going to read this from a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message because I like how it puts this. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. He said, you know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. And let your living spill over into thanksgiving. Watch out for people who try to dazzle you with big words and intellectual double talk. They want to drag you off into endless arguments that never amount to anything. But that's not the way of Christ. Everything of God gets expressed in Him. So you can see and hear Him clearly. You don't need a telescope, a microscope, or a horoscope to realize the fullness of Christ and the emptiness of the universe without him. Okay, so Paul warns us here about people who are only looking to argue and debate without actually going anywhere with it. James issued a similar warning when he said in James chapter 2, verse 18, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. So James is saying here that there are some people who will try to intellectualize their faith and that's all there is to it for them. And then they'll try to defend themselves and argue that faith is different for everyone. For some, faith is expressed in good deeds. For others, it's more cerebral, it's intellectual, it's something you think about. It may never be expressed in good deeds for them. But James is saying that real faith is not just something you think. It's much more than that. Fourthly, he says that real faith is not just something you believe. It's not just something you believe. 
In James chapter 2, verse 19, it says, Do you still think it's enough to just believe that there's one God? Well, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. There are a lot of people who have strong beliefs about God and the Bible and Jesus. They can recite creeds to you and catechisms and talk about Christian doctrines like the Trinity. They can quote Bible verses to you. They believe what we say they need to believe. But James says about them, big deal. Just saying you believe in God is not enough to get you into heaven. Even the devil believes in God. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it says it's foolish to be an atheist. And the devil is no fool. The devil believes in God. In fact, the devil is a great theologian. He knows a, a lot more about the Bible than you do. He's been around a whole lot longer. He knows Christian belief backwards and forwards. He, he believes. His demons believe too. And they shudder. They tremble in fear. In fact, a Greek word used here in this verse for tremble is literally to bristle. That means their hair stands up on end. It's the kind of word you'd use when reading a Stephen King novel. Why? Because the devil and his demons understand the majesty and the awesomeness of God. That's why they tremble. They believe in God. And they tremble in terror. But for some people, having faith in God simply means that they believe in God. And believing in God means that they consent intellectually to the existence of God. But that's as far as it goes. But real faith, real belief, means to trust in God, to cling to Him, to rely on Him, to commit yourself to Him completely. I believe in Hitler, but I'm not a Nazi. I believe in Jesus, and I am a Christian. What's the difference? Well, with Hitler, I have a head knowledge. I have information about who he was. I believe he was a man who actually existed. But with Jesus, it goes way beyond just the head knowledge. It includes a complete commitment that impacts the way that I live. You know, we've said this before, but a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. They've got it all in their head, but not in their heart. They say, I believe in God. And James says, big deal. Almost everybody believes in God. Something like 90% of the population believes in God. Some surveys put that number even higher closer to 97%. Most people believe that God exists. But that's not enough. Real faith is not just saying, I believe. I mentioned earlier that 72% of Canadians claim that they're Christians. What are they saying when they say that? Well, they're saying they believe that God exists. They offer an intellectual consent to that concept. And there's so much of this easy beliefism across Canada. But when asked if they actually attend church regularly, only 21% said they did. But that's only if you take their word for it. Other studies have shown that the actual number of Canadians who attend church on a regular basis is more likely to be around 10%. There are signs that that's turning around, but that's where we are right now. So if most of this 72% of Canadians who claim to be Christians are not even doing the basics of worshipping God and participating in the body of Christ, then what are the chances they're showing their faith in any other ways? They'd say, sure, I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. Well, do you attend church? No. 
Do you donate your time? No. Do you tithe? No. Do you serve others as, as an expression of God's love? Well, no, not really. Well, James would say that that's a phony belief. You're just conning yourself. And a lot of people are doing that. They have an easy beliefism. An easy beliefism, but it's not being translated into a real practical faith. Real faith is not just something you believe. It's not just something you think. It's not just something you feel. It's not just something you say. It's not just any of those. It's all of them. Plus, real faith is something you do. What did James say? He said in, in James chapter 2, verse 18, Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. In that verse, in your notes, circle the words, show me. Show me your faith. Show me. How do you show faith? I mean, faith is odorless, it's weightless, colorless, it's invisible. So anybody can claim to have faith. How do you know for sure? What well, James says, show me. What well, it's Missouri, isn't it, that has that as their state motto? It's the show me state. Well, James is saying, show me. He says, if you claim to be a Christian, then I have a right to ask you to prove it to me. It should show in the way that you live. One person has said, faith is like calories. You can't see them, but you can sure see the results. Well, you can't see faith, but you can sure see the results. So in that sense, real faith is visible. It becomes visible through your life. You can see it. You can see the results of it. It's apparent. If you say, I know it, then show it. How do you know if you're a believer? You'll see some changes in your life. Real faith always produces change. Real faith is not just something you say. It's not just something you feel. It's not just something you think. It's not just something you believe. It's something you do. You show it. And James illustrates this for us in the last few verses of chapter 2. He uses two examples to show us that real faith is something that you do. Real faith is active. It's not passive. It's a commitment that translates into action. Two illustrations of two very different people, Abraham and Rahab, exact opposite extremes. Abraham's a man. Rahab's a woman. Abraham is Jewish. Rahab is a Gentile. Abraham is a patriarch. Rahab is a prostitute. Abraham is a somebody in the, in the society. Rahab's a nobody. Abraham is a major character in the Bible. Rahab's a minor character. And James uses these two people to show us it doesn't matter who you are as long as you've got the important thing. And what was the important thing? Well, they only had one thing in common, their faith in God. And for them, their faith in God led them to action. Let's take a look at what James wrote uh, in verses 20 through 22. He wrote, Fool, when will you ever learn that faith that does not result in good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was declared right with God because of what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. That's what James wrote. Now, maybe you already know this story. It's the ultimate test where God asked Abraham to give up his own son. Why? Well, this had nothing to do with salvation. Abraham was already a believer. That had been settled some 25 years earlier. 
Abraham was already a believer, so what's this all about? Well, this was about Abraham showing how much he believed. It was about him acting on his faith, even if it might cost him. Abraham obeyed God, and he did it immediately. He did what God asked. He took his son, he cut the wood, he built an altar, and he was all ready to sacrifice his own son. In fact, Abraham had his son laying on the altar and had the knife ready to strike and sacrifice his son when God stopped him and said, I was just testing you to see what's most important in your life. I wanted to see that your faith is real. Abraham's faith led to action. His works proved his faith. He held nothing back from God. And then there's Rahab. Her story is in the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 2. It's a story of how a prostitute helped a couple of Israeli spies when they were in the city of Jericho. The Israelites had been freed from their captivity in Egypt and had spent 40 years traveling through the desert. And they were just about to enter the land that God had promised to them. And so they sent these spies into the land to scope it out. And the first stop, Jericho. But the officials in Jericho, the king in Jericho, caught wind that the spies may be there, and they tried to track them down. But Rahab hid them and saved their lives, and because of that act of faith, Rahab actually ended up being in the family line of Jesus. She risked her lives to save the spies. She believed in God, she had a faith in him, and she proved it by what she did. Now understand this, our faith is not determined by what we do. It's not. Our salvation is not based on our good works. It's not determined by what we do, but it is demonstrated by what we do. Your works do not gain you salvation, but once you have salvation, it better show in what you do. About 150 years ago, there was a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin who for a publicity stunt decided he'd walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Nobody else had ever done that before him. And so he had a tightrope stretched from one side of Niagara Falls to the other. And on the appointed day, thousands of people showed up to see this unbelievable feat. They lined both the Canadian and the American sides. And then the time came. Blondin walked up to the edge of the tightrope, put one foot on the tightrope, and then then the other, and began to walk across inch by inch, step by step, until he got out in the middle where he actually stopped. People didn't know what he was doing there, but he stopped. He lowered a rope all the way down to the boat that that provides the tours of Niagara Falls, the Maid of the Mist. Then he raised up from that boat a bottle. He got a bottle and he just sat down in the middle of the rope and had a drink and refreshed himself. And then he got up and he kept on going. And as he was going, everybody knew that if he made one mistake in balance, he'd fall off the rope and into the falls and plunge to his death. But then suddenly, he did a back somersault. And then he kept going, a step at a time, until he finally reached the other side. And when he arrived there, the crowd went wild, shouting and cheering. So Blinden said, I'm going to do this again. And he did. Several times he did that during the summers of 1859 and 1860. And he liked to mix it up a bit, too. He crossed blindfolded. He went on stilts. Figure that one out. He pushed a wheelbarrow across. He crossed in a sack. One time, he even took a small stove with him, and he stopped in the middle uh, and cooked himself an omelet and ate it out there. And every time, the crowd went crazy when he finished crossing the rope. 
But one time when he finished crossing, he had an announcement to make. He announced that the next time he crossed, he would carry his manager, Harry Colkert, on his back. Now, I don't really know how excited old Harry was about that idea, but he agreed to it and he did it. And he would later say that it was a nightmare for him. Apparently, while they were up in the center section where there weren't any guy ropes to use to steady themselves, the pair of them began to sway violently. Blondin was fighting for both of their lives. In fact, as they made their way across, Blondin broke into a desperate run to reach the first guy rope. And he did it. He reached that guy rope, and when he reached it and, reached and grabbed it to steady himself, it broke. But somehow he managed to keep his balance, and he kept on going, reached the next guy rope, steadied himself, and, and continued until he finally reached the other side. But can you imagine how much faith Harry Colcord must have had in Blondin? Can you imagine how much faith it would have taken to ride on his back as he crossed the falls? Well, in a very real sense, that's what God says to you. He says, get on. Talk is cheap. Put your money where your mouth is. You say, I believe in Jesus, then prove it. Our faith is demonstrated by our actions. Actions speak louder than words. Our behavior shows what we really believe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see if your faith is really genuine. Test yourselves. So test it. Test your faith. Check it out. See if you're really a believer or not. Ask yourself, am I really a Christian after all? In the light of what James says, am I really a Christian? Is there evidence that can support that? What changes can I point to in my life? Is my lifestyle any different at all from unbelievers? Many people think that it doesn't matter what you do as long as you believe, but James says that's not true. He's not saying that you can work your way to heaven. He's not saying that your works determine your salvation. What he's saying is they demonstrate your salvation. Your works demonstrate your faith. He's saying if your faith doesn't work, then what good is it? So how do you know for sure? Maybe some of you have had doubts whether you're really a believer or not. You're a good person. You go to church. You know about Christ. You read your Bible. You have religion. And you've gone to all the classes and seminars. But are you sure that if you died tonight, you'd go to heaven? Because the fact is, you can be sure. You don't have to leave here this morning and have a shadow of a doubt. You can settle it right here. Maybe some of you here this morning have been struggling with doubts about whether your faith is real or not. You say, I've believed about Jesus, but I've never believed in Jesus. I want to settle that today. If you've got those doubts, then why not settle it this morning? In fact, just silently where you are, you can pray something like this. Let's pray. You can pray this silently in your heart where you are. Pray, Lord, I want to have a real faith, not a phony faith. I want to have a belief in you that goes way beyond a simple head knowledge. I want my faith to be a complete, total surrender to you and your ways. I don't want to just believe in you. I want to live for you. I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. So I give you every area of my life as best as I know how. I give you my past, all the things that have ever happened to me, the good and the bad, the achievements, the faults, the sins, the mistakes. 
I ask you to take it all. I admit that I've gone my own way many times. I've made my own decisions without talking to you about them. And I ask you to forgive me for that. And Lord, I not only give you my past, I want to give you my future. I don't know what it holds, but I know that you know it. I want to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And I want to be a real believer. And Jesus, I want to give you my present too, right now. Take my life and make me the person you want me to be. Help me to grow. Please give me the assurance that I am a Christian and help me to to show it in my life by obeying your word and demonstrating your love. Thank you for loving me. Well, if you've prayed that prayer this morning and if you meant it, then I believe that God heard you. The Bible tells us, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, you do your part, I'll do my part. And so if you prayed that prayer, then he has done that for you this morning. And you need to let somebody know about that. You can tell me, you can tell the person you came with, somebody, uh, a believer that you know and love and respect. Let Let somebody know if you've made that decision this morning. Let me pray again for all of us. Father, I want to thank you for those who've made this decision this morning in their hearts. Today, they're settling it. I pray that your Holy Spirit will put a confirmation in their hearts that today they're giving themselves to you. I know this isn't a promise to be perfect, but it's a promise to let you take control. You've said that you would come into our lives and make us new people. So thank you for wiping away all the things we've ever done wrong in the past and giving us a brand new start in life. Thank you that we can become new people when we come and give our lives to you in faith. We praise you and we worship you. In your name, amen.